Hey everyone, this is the audio version of episode number 29 of the 100% Wild Podcast. And on this episode, Matt and I are joined by Dan Perez of Whitetail Properties to answer a series of questions about food plots. So if you're doing any habitat management for deer this year, I really think you're going to enjoy this one. All right, welcome to another episode of the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon with Wired to Hunt. Next to me here, Mr. Matt Drury of Drury Outdoors. How's it going? Good. All right, we're knocking these podcasts out today. We are today. knocking like them this. out. It's still good to be here. We got it is. refueled with some Jimmy Johns. We did. And uh, we're ready for another good episode. So I'm excited about this episode because, you know, through the years as, as I've grown up in Drury Outdoors and I've always heard all these names and, and one of the names that I've heard from the very beginning really was a guy by the name of Dan Perez. And I've come to know him, know him as a friend later in life as I've worked with Drury Outdoors here. But Dan, uh, I've always heard Mark and Terry say such good things about him, a consummate professional, a good friend, uh, a man of faith, and a big buck killer. And, of course, uh, he's with Whitetail Properties, which is – you know, America's leading land agent as far as sal- selling properties. So, uh, Dan, without further ado, welcome to the 100% Wild Podcast. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it. So, um, we were briefly talking there in the break. About when did you meet Mark and Terry, or, or Mark specifically? Yeah, initially I met Mark, and uh, it, it was at a show. I'm trying to think what show it, it was. It, it was a long time ago. So I think it was 1988. And, uh, you know, I meet a lot of people at the shows. You you, you do a lot of shows. At that time, I, I was doing all, all the shows. I think I was gone 200 days out of the year. And uh, But when I met Mark, there was something very sincere, very forthright about him that that I, I knew we would be friends. And, uh, and, and we have been ever since. And then later... Um, I met Terry, and the genetics were the same. I mean, we, we got along really well. Uh, great people. So now, when did when did Whitetail Properties kind of start? Uh, you know, you guys have been doing it for a while now, but when did you guys get this idea that, that you could sell, you know, recreational farms and, and, and do it at the level that you're doing it? Because it's impressive. I mean, there's, you know, I don't know that there's anybody that does it quite as well as Whitetail Properties. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Um, you know, we've been doing this now for, uh, as a company, Whitetail Properties, for roughly 11 years. Um, I took, and I'll take you back a little farther. I, I, I got into the bull business with PSE because um, I, I love, you know, I thought it was because I love bulls, but the reality is most of us that, that are in the outdoor industry, uh, a lot of us, it's it's our love of land. You know, I mean, we love the outdoors. Um you know, a lot of a lot of folks think that uh, it's a, it's only about the hunting. But if it, if I didn't have beautiful sunrises and crisp air and just the smell of of, of nature, I, I I wouldn't keep coming back. <laughs> you know, I, I've been hunting since I was a, a little boy, and it's always been for me. It's always been about the stewardship of, of land. It's always been about the land and uh, everything else or products that we use out there. So I guess what I'm getting at is is I I, I left PSE, which was a hard hard thing for me because I, I love PSC and uh but my passion for land was unbelievable and, and I remember talking to my wife about it and, and I had had the talk several times over the years that man I sure would love to sell land and uh, she told me she said you know if if that's what you want to do uh I'm behind you 500 percent I I didn't have any idea 
what the earning potential was. I had no idea about anything. All I knew is that I, I, I love land. I love the outdoors and nothing. I mean, there's properties that I've walked and I've showed people the land and I would have paid the landowner to let me on just to walk around, you know, so it's a, it, it's a job. And I'll tell you a short story real fast here. Um, the first property that I had listed, I went over there to take pictures and I'm, I'm walking down this dry creek bed. There's a little bit of water in it, about an inch of water. And I'm taking pictures of the bank, uh, creek bank there where the trails are just stitching like a zipper back and forth. And there was a set of tracks going up the bank on one side and they still had water in them. Uh, and I thought, man, that, that deer, those deer just came across here just seconds ago. So I climbed up the bank and it was one of them, one of them crisp mornings where uh, it seems like, like, the earth is waking up. There's just steam coming off. You know, it's beautiful. And I looked over the bank, and there was there was three bucks out there, and their heads were down. They were feeding, and then one of them puts their, his head up, and it was a huge. I mean, it was a big buck. And I remember I, I slid down the bank, and I went down the creek a little ways where I didn't think those deer could hear me, and I called my wife, and uh, she answered the phone, and and I said I said I whispered I said honey. I can't believe I'm being paid to do this. And, 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 and I've been like that my whole life. You know, a lot of things have changed in my life, but my passion for the outdoors hasn't wavered one bit, you know. So well, that, it's, uh, I'm, I'm blessed to be doing Any of us that are doing what we want to do for a living, considering how many people are out there slaving every day and hating it, um, we're very blessed. It's, it's, um, your timing's pretty awesome because right before you came on, Mark and I were literally, we just did just kind of a bonus podcast with just the two of us. And that was our topic and how to get in the industry. And, and, you know, I said, good people find good people. And, and, and Mark was talking about having to, you got to have the passion, you know, cause you're not going to get rich. You got to have the passion to go out and really work hard and want to do this. And your story is beautiful. It just absolutely kind of yeah. talks about what we were just together talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, it really resonates. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I got to ask you, Dan, kind of shifting gears a little bit, but you just kind of reminded me of something that I was curious about. When, we, As we're recording this right now, we are just off of the 2017 Shed Rally, and I'm curious to hear about how your 2017 Shed Rally went. It went wonderful. I tell you what, but I don't measure my, my, my time in the field by antlers, but um, it was really good. We we. You know the thing that's cool about the shed rally is is that uh, there's there's people all over the country sh- looking for shed antlers on the same day and we're sharing that via social media. You know it's really really exciting. And uh, but I, I tell you, uh, it's all relative. Uh, this year, um, the farmer turned my ground back under, so there wasn't there wasn't a lot of food on the property. And uh, so I didn't find near the sheds that I have in the past, but but it has it's just as enjoyable. But what I really enjoy about uh, the shed rally in particular is we make it a we make it a, a family affair, and the kids are out there and they're looking for antlers. And they, I mean, it's priceless when when a when a four or five year old picks up an antler. You know, he don't even know why you're so excited. You know, you've kind of steered him in that direction because you knew it was there, and all of a sudden he picks it up and and he's looking at you and. And then all of a sudden there's a camera on him and he don't know what to do. But it's, it's just it's just because that little rascal, he's going to uh, if, if the bloodline goes the way that it has been, uh, he, he'll be leading those those shed rallies, you know, and 
and it's it's it was it's a lot of fun a lot, lot of fun i love i love like i said i love just walking those hilltops and looking because for me it doesn't matter if it's if it's a tiny little fork horn or if it's a giant shed it's just that initial it's almost startling when you initially spot that shed it's it's exciting you know you just get a little rush yeah and uh that's what it's about for me it's pretty cool yeah i can definitely uh i can definitely relate to that i that, wish that i felt pump. the rush more yeah, I, <laughs> I, uh, I had a shed really kind of like you mentioned dan where we didn't find well we didn't find any antlers <laughs> but but we had a lot of fun we had a lot of laughs and and then that's that's the most important thing yeah. so to your point yeah oh nice nice wow. that's cool but it's cool you know that's one thing this this was a unique one that i call it the duck foot he's got uh, a little area here that looks like a, a duck's foot yeah and, uh, that's this, cool this, uh, this is a cool find this is an animal that uh, i've never seen and uh, this is the second year that i have found his antlers wow so he, he slips in the late season and uh and stays with me i guess hangs out but uh very, that's very cool, cool. i don't know why i brought it to work but i put it on my desk and i like i do stuff like that i put yeah. it on my desk and just look at it that's right. unique that's really cool looking yeah i don't blame you that's that's an incredible antler <laughs> I uh, love to find one of those. So (laughs) I guess since we're not going to find any sheds here today, we should move on to what our question of the day is, which uh, I think, Dan, you're going to have a lot of interesting things to share with us. So, Matt? All right, guys. This question comes from Eric, uh, and he says, I have an awesome spot that I would like to plant a food plot for this deer season, but the ground is mostly clay. Do you have any suggestions, or should I just pick another spot? Yeah, no, you know, there's some, there's some, um, some seed that, that does well in poor soils, but the, the key is to take a, a soil sample first. This is what I do. I, I don't, I don't know the different, uh, the different seeds that, that work best in the different, in, in what soils, but I take a soil sample, then, then I read the seed bags. And, uh, more, more importantly, I go on the website, uh, of that manufacturer, whoever that manufacturer is that I'm considering putting their seed in the ground. And, and, and I study, you know, some of them um, require a higher pH. They require more fertility. And some of them, um, you could you could spread them anywhere, a- anywhere, and they'll grow, you know. Some of them require that you work the ground a little more. Some of them don't. So that's what I key on is, is as soon as I – when I figure out what that soil type is, uh, then I try to find – if it's if it's that, that special spot, that secret spot where – where you know you're going to ambush a buck, I'm not going to look for somewhere else. I'm going to I'm going to find something else that'll work right there. You know, that's that would be my plan. Okay, and can you? This is a pretty simple thing, but some people maybe just don't know it. What goes into that whole soil sample process for those that are new to food plotting and they hear you say that? Can you can you just give us a little more detail in regards to what that means, how they can go about getting that, what that tells them? You bet. O- over here, for example, the Farm Bureau. Uh, they'll give me a, they'll give me the the bags to identify on the bag where that soil came from, what what uh, uh, on the farm, and then uh, they'll give me a tool that's uh, I just uh, it's like a plug. You you put it in the ground and it pulls out a plug of soil, and you simply put that in the uh, in the bag, uh, identify it, and, and and zip that that bag. Depending on how how large your food plot is, uh, you may have several from that same food plot. And then I take them to uh, the uh, farm bureau. Uh, they send it out for uh, to the lab. It comes back and tells me what it consists of. Uh, and and then I, I match those soils uh, with 
uh, what the pH is, all the, all the information on that uh, uh, lab test uh, with what I can plant in that soil. Do you have any, any favorite food plots? I know it's so dependent on, on different situations and stuff, but on your main properties there where you're hunting, what does your food plot forage kind of regiment look like right now? What do you, how do you have that broken up on your farms? Yep. Uh, here, here's what I do, and it makes it easy to maintain the soil by doing this. And I don't, I don't want to name any, any particular brands that I use other than I'll take a food plot. I do this often. Half of it will be cereal grains, okay? And the other half will be brassicas, a uh, mixture of radishes, turnips, what have you. And then the next season, I rotate them. That's, uh, that's, that's what I do. So uh, the, the brassicas are, are complementary uh, to the cereal grains as far as nourishing the soil for them and vice versa. So that, that makes it real easy. And, and, and it gives a... You know, there's something about variety. You know, it gives them a little bit of uh, uh, early season. Uh, they, they may be on the cereal grains as it turns later into the season. They may be more on the brassicas. Uh, this, this works out very good. And I've had some cases where um, they're on the brassicas right away early. It just depends on the, on the location, the situation. I think, I think a lot of it probably depends on the soils as well, uh, what that plant is bringing up through the roots into, uh, into the actual uh, – uh, turnip or radish, uh, what that tastes to, the, how that tastes at that time of the year varies depending on the soil as well. So there's there's all kinds of uh, variables, but I, I like to rotate my cereal grains and and my uh, brassicas every year. Now I like I also like a solid staple that's there year round because I believe that that you shouldn't just depend on attracting the animals uh, in the fall when you want them. You've got to have a deer herd that you maintain year-round. You know, I want that fawn to uh, to eat and grow up on that property and, and that I'm hunting, whether I'm leasing ground or whether I own the ground. I don't want them to leave. I don't want them, or, or I don't want to just attract deer in the fall. I want to hold them. So I always have uh, clover's my best. Uh, I, I, I love clover for holding uh, deer on the property year-round. So if you had to pick one, you know, type uh, as far as a killing plot, maybe it's a little hidey hole plot and tucked in the timber somewhere. What would you have in that killing plot? Would it be a clover? Would it be a whatever? A brassica? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think um, that little killing plot, okay, let's, let's say it depends a lot too on, on, the, on the population, how, how many deer you have there per square mile. Brassicas can go fast because they don't regenerate, you know, so that, that bothers me a little bit. But my favorite for um, an attractant that, that is good early and it's good late is um, for a secret spot like you just you just uh, talked about, uh, turnips and oats. I, I love oats. I put a lot of oats out there and turnips, and, and so I've got, a, I've got something that will uh, hold them either way and attract them as well. Uh, I'd say if there was one one mix, that would probably be it. Very good. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. That's that's basically the exact same thing that I run on my food plots. And to your point, I, I split it just like you mentioned. Half is cereal grains, half is brassicas. So I plant half in oats and half in those winter greens. And like you said, flip-flop them. And to your point, it, it's very attractive. 
but at different parts of the season. So you've got those oats that are pulling deer in. They're very palatable in the early season. And then as that those colder temperatures come through and you start getting those frosts, then those brassicas start getting those sugars, and they become very attractive. And so what's neat about that is that you do keep that consistent deer attraction throughout the entire season so you can pattern deer, and it's a season-long thing. It's not. I mean, I think there can be benefits to shifting food plots throughout a property so maybe you have a great early season spot in the north side of your property and it could be a great spot on the south or the late but i found it pretty valuable on a small property like i have to have it consistent that throughout an entire season i know that they'll be zoning in or keying in on this spot and um, i can plan for that the entire year and then like you said next season flip them around um that's worked well yeah, and, you, and Mark, you said it so much better than I could say it. <laughs> well, That's why he's on the podcast. He's, I, just, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a wordsmith. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Um, while, we're on, while we're talking about the specifics of food plots, Dan, um, I'm just kind of curious to hear about some of your thoughts on the shape and size of food plots that you're planning. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, do you usually just plant whatever the open area is you have on a property, or do you try to actually design these plots to facilitate some kind of movement or to give yourself a better chance at a shot or anything like that? Yes. I a couple things go into it because I could put a plot almost anywhere that I want. If I wanted the timber, I could go in there and uh, I could uproot some trees and I'll open a spot. Uh, if it's a cove that comes into the field, uh, that's very common. I could, you know, like if you have agriculture and there'll be a little cold that comes into the timber. I, I like those situations. I could, I could utilize that, but I could, I could put a, a food plot about anywhere. But what's important to me, number one, is that I could approach that food plot um, with the right wind. If, if, I, if I can't get in and out of there, depending on the prevailing wind, uh, it's in a bad spot. If I can't, if I can't set up an ambush, it's, it's in the wrong spot. You know, I, I, I want to, uh, um, I want to be as effective as I can be. And uh, the bad thing about, the good thing about food plots is that they attract a lot of deer. And uh, the bad thing about food plots is that they attract a lot of deer. It isn't like you're going to get an opportunity at that one buck that's coming through and nothing else is going to catch you. Food plots are kind of, they're kind of a little more difficult to hunt in a, in a lot of cases. Uh, uh, very often I don't hunt the food plot itself. I try to hunt the deer coming in and out of the food plot in the timber, pinch points, etc. But uh, what works well um, in in a situation where it's a staging plot, it's that plot that if you're in in, in a lot of places in the Midwest, uh, eventually the deer are gonna they're gonna end up out in the open expanses of, of agriculture, and they'll stage in them smaller plots. So. What I like is the hourglass shape, talking about shapes, is where one end of it on the timber side, for example, is big. And then uh, it hourglasses in such a way that it, it opens up large again. But where it comes in, uh, I have a blind sometimes. This is one set up on a staging plot uh, where the blind is right in the middle of the narrow. So I've got a 30-yard shot out, out of either side. And those deer, I mean, they seem like sometimes they'll hug the edge of a food plot. They'll feed out there where they're comfortable and they're far enough from the blind. But when they're coming around the blind, they'll, they'll kind of work the edge where the, where, the, where the food plot, whatever it is, clover or whatever, meets the uh, forbs or meets the, uh, the grasses. And, and they'll follow it and then go back out into the large again. But it draws them into a 30-yard range so I can shoot them comfortably with a bow. I, I, I like those setups a lot. But 
they're only effective for me. Uh, I don't like being in the middle of a food plot. It's only effective if it is a staging plot, if they're going to be gone when I get out at night. And uh, when I have those setups, e even even at, even that setup, I hunt it very sparingly in that I don't want any deer catching me coming in and out of that blind too often. So how, how do you how do you manage that on those food plots <coughs> where you are hunting somewhere very close to it? How do you handle your access and, and exits out of there? Do you have are you usually getting driven in there or have you manufactured some kind of cover or something that allows you to sneak in there without getting seen? What's your specific way of doing that? Yes, uh, both. And so uh, if I'm hunting the middle of the plot like that, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the food plots in the Midwest, they tend to crown. Uh, very seldom do you have an actually flat food plot, if, especially if it's a cove, for example, that comes into the timber. I love those setups because they drop into the fields from all from everywhere. But if, if it's if it's a, uh, uh, a staging plot, well, I don't get out of that blind till those those deer are way out into the open field and they, they're not going to catch me. But what I do is immediately when I get out of that blind, I drop to the low side of that field and I follow that timber edge. And they, they, they can't see me. I mean, you know, they, in those particular cases. But uh, what I, I like a lot if I'm hunting a food plot is to uh, have a setup where I'm in the fence row. I like to, I like to be in a really brushy fence row. Uh, two years ago, I, 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 I cut out the fence and, and I put my blind right in the fence itself. And I've got trees that are, are laying over the top of it and across it. And, and then on one side of the blind, the food plot side of the blind, I covered it up. So when I'm coming down the ladder, they can't see me. But literally, I, I, could, I could slip into my blind with deer in the food plot and climb up there and get in the blind with a deer 20, 25, 30 yards away. They won't even know I was there. So when I leave in the evening, uh, on that setup, they, they won't, they won't see me go. They won't see me come down the ladder and they won't, they won't know I was ever in the blind. But I, I that particular setup, I call the gap. I've got the, the blind in, in the fence row. And then just a little bit, 20 yards from me, there's another gap in the fence that, uh, they funnel through there like a, like a freight train back and forth, you know? So that's just two examples. Now, sometimes I have had a setup. I, I, I planted uh, warm season grasses before, uh, and that Egyptian, uh, uh, that Egy I don't know what they call it, Egyptian, Egyptian wheat. something. What? Egyptian wheat. Egyptian wheat, yeah, and it just like, bam. Yeah. As soon as I get down under the block, out of the blind, uh, I, I get on that, on the, the opposite side of the food plot and just follow that all the way out. And it'll, they're just on the other side. They can't, they can't smell me because the wind direction and they can't, they can't see me. So it's a sweet setup. Yeah. sounds like it. That's always the thing with Mark and Terry. I always notice the access is so good. You know, they always think through, I think that's the difference between your really good hunters. One of the differences is they always think through the access so well and they don't go in if they don't have the right access. Well, yeah, and then taking that step further to a lot of things that Dan just said, you know, it's it's these details. It's all those. I mean, we yeah. talk about it every single time, but it's always the next level is that <laughs> next detail, that attention to detail. In you know, it's not just planning a food plot. I mean, we start where it's like, oh, I want to throw some seed and I don't have a food plot, and then you start thinking, okay, you know, I need to take a soil sample. I need to figure out what the right forage would be for this soil here. 
Yeah. And then the next step, maybe is the next year you start thinking about, okay, well, now I need to think about the shape. Like Dan said, maybe an hourglass shape. And then maybe the next year you start paying attention to realizing that you, know, you got to have the right wind to access this. So I'm going to shift it over a little bit to be closer to this bedding area. And then the next year it's figuring out your access. And it's like every year if you can start putting one more of these details in your favor, you start being one of those guys or girls that consistently is able to have success. But it yeah. takes that focus on each of these little things. Um, I think Danny did a great job pointing out a lot of examples like that that kind of illustrate that importance. Thank you. You bet. So, Dan, you know, you've been doing this a long time. What kind of evolution, and as far as the hunting side of things go, I mean, food plots, because back in the day, we just didn't hunt a lot of food plots way back, you know, late 80s, early 90s. That was really what you were, you know, everybody timber hunted primarily is 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 it food plots is it trail cameras like what is the big change that you've seen as far as how the majority of hunters today hunt compared to back then yeah and i agree with you lots changed in, in the way that i approach it as well um but I, I, this is not too much different but my, and I, I'll, I'll go back to your your question but the way that I approach it is, is the early season, I hunt as much edge as possible, whether that's food plot or just fence rolls or out on the edge. I want to save uh, my timber, my best spots when, when those bucks are chasing or those bucks are looking for does, uh, those internal pinch points be, between bedding areas and or between bedding areas and, and, and feeding. Uh, I, I try to concentrate on those pinch points uh, later, you know, that, that first week, second week in November here in the Midwest, that's, that's, so I, I want them as, as virgin as possible. Um, so I hunt, I hunt the outsides. I, I hunt the food plots, I hunt the fence roads, I hunt the edge, uh, before I move in. Now, uh, the cameras have been crazy. I mean, nowadays, God, you could, you could, have it sent to your phone right from the camera so you know within minutes you could be in camp and say holy cow that buck just walked by mm. camera number three and then just take off to be at camera number two now i've never done that but i could see where where that happen can happen um they're they're awesome and the other the other thing that they do i killed a buck this year i called him four out because his, his g-force dished out and uh cool buck and he's an old buck and he's been on the farm for a long time i lost him at one point in other words like uh he's a three-year-old i saw him great buck four-year-old great buck and uh i thought man when he turns five i'm i'm gonna do everything i can to harvest this animal he's gonna be really good now year five he disappeared he wasn't on the farm and, and you know here in the last few years there's been a lot about ehd and and uh, he left, he disappeared off the cameras about that time. And, and I thought, well, so much for four out. It was a good, had a good experience with him over the years. And uh, so I'm hunting, it's year six, uh, I'm hunting and uh, on different parts of the farm. And, and whenever possible, I pull cards, uh, SD cards uh, from my various cameras. And I try to do it in a way that's the least intrusive. In other words, two are from a, a, a stand or a blind. I'll, I'll pull a card and replace it. And bam, out of nowhere, I think it was November 2nd, uh, four out shows up on the property. And I'm, I'm like, holy cow, I got really excited about it. And <clears throat> so he was uh, in a part of the property that I call the mulberry. I got a lot of mulberry trees on it, that end of the farm. And so I, uh, I I didn't move in right away. I checked again for the card. No no four out. No four out. And I set up. 
I didn't move in real tight. I set up where I could see that entire area and there was no four out. So I'm hunting another end of the farm. I'm actually hunting the gap now. And uh, that, uh, that evening, uh, when, when all, the, all the deer are back out into the ag, a lot of times I like to pull cards when they're out away, you know. That night, I, uh, I pulled the card uh, at the uh, horseshoe. And the horseshoe, I name it the horseshoe. It's a plot that is, uh, there's a peninsula of timber that, that cuts in and falls short of going all the way across the plot, so it creates a horseshoe shape. That's why I call it the horseshoe. So, and I've got a blind right in the peninsula itself. Um, so that's the horseshoe. So that, that night when I went home, I, I plugged in the computer and bam, there's four out. And I, I was really excited. Now, I wasn't able to hunt that spot for two days because of the wind would have been wrong, but I was able to slip in one more time and four out was still in there and you're still uh, badgering or, or nosing the does all over the place. So, so, you know, it's been my experience when that happens, when they settle in on an area, they're going to be there for a few days. So you, you want to get in there and try to kill them as quickly as possible. So I, I went, we slipped into the blind. It was, it was a really nice. The wind was perfectly, it was coming out of the Northwest. It was cool, a little bit of cloud cover. Great, great evening of being a blind. And, uh, I remember I, uh, I was, I was, just about surprised, though, that everything came to, to fruition because here about uh, 4.30, there's this doe just bust out into the food plot. And uh, a couple seconds later, uh, four out, he comes out with his nose down and starts dogging her all over. Uh, and it ended up, I, I, uh, I arrowed, but maybe, maybe five minutes later, I ended up arrowing four out. She ran him back into the woods and out and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff is pretty exciting. And he stretched out to work the branches with his antlers. He was working the branches and rubbing his, his face in it and then pawing a scrape. And he stretched out while he, while he was, uh, while he was reaching up into the limbs, he stretched his neck out. And I, I drilled him perfectly right behind the shoulder, kind of, kind of quartering away. Uh, and he crashed. I mean, it was, it was awesome, awesome hunt. And the way that it worked was 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 awesome. Having lost them for a year, then find them, then kill them was it was extremely exciting for me. Oh yeah, it makes for a really cool story to have that kind of history too. Oh yeah. So so Dan, I feel like with every one of my hunts, and, and many times it's successful hunts or unsuccessful hunts, but in lots of cases like this, if I kill a deer, there's always something that I learn from it or something that's reaffirmed or reinforced. Was there anything with this hunt with four out that? was like that was the lesson learned or that was the, the lesson that I was reminded of from this kill, this successful hunt? Yeah, this has happened to me two times now. Uh, and, and the lesson to me is don't count them out. Just because you, you think they're dead, that doesn't mean they're dead. I had a, I had a, a situation, you, you, you guys both know Joe Schultz. Uh, he's, he's a big part of your team. I, I used to uh, neighbor Joe uh, there in Dutch Creek in, in Pike County. And... Uh, there was a buck that I called Busy. Uh, busy because he had a tight rack with all kinds of stuff going on. He had, you know, a lot of tons. And uh, so so I lost Busy for two years. I had him till he was uh, three years old, and I was, you know, watching Busy grow up. And, and then I lost him as a four-year-old. I lost him as a five-year-old. He was gone. For sure, I counted him dead. And then one day, Busy showed up. And the day that he showed up was the day that I killed him. And again, though, I say that. I take that back. The day that he showed up, I got his image on the camera, and I got excited. The next time the wind was right, I killed him. And uh, so I posted on uh, on Facebook, Busy. And uh, 
and then I, I get a, uh, uh, a reply from uh, Joe on, uh, on Facebook, and he says, man, you killed trash. He called me trash. And uh, I, I said, what do you mean? And so he started telling me that trash has been living on him for two years. Wow. Uh, and so that's funny how that worked out, you know. If, uh, if Joe had been a little better hunter, he'd have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because that's, I mean, that's really that you, you get so attached to these deer and ultimately they're a free range animal and they can do where, you know, go wherever they want and do whatever they want. And you get attached and when you, when they don't show up, like you think they should on your cameras, all of a sudden you start to get worried, and it's just amazing. You know, it just shows you they can they can pop back into your life at any time. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll give you. I get real quick. I give you a, a cool story. It. Uh, I had a buck called Tall Tines. He's an eight with really tall tines, and uh, <clears throat> I I had him pretty figured out. You know how, how some animals. They cover quite an area, and then some animals are like people. They they just like they've got this area, and they hunt hang tight. I had this 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 buck I called Tall Tines that lived in. Uh, he literally lived in my sanctuary. It was less than 30 acres. That's where he lived. He came out on me very often, and everywhere that I was worried that he might go, I put a I hung a camera. I wanted to know if he was leaving. You know, and there's certain places that that the deer used to go out into the big fields and and to the neighbor and stuff. And at that time, at that time, Terry Drury uh, owned the property next door. And uh, dang, if all of a sudden I see on, uh, it was dream season seven, I'm almost sure it was dream season seven, Terry shot over the back of Tall Time. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> it was Terry hunting there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I killed him the next year. <laughs> it, it was awesome that, that it worked out that way because I thought, man, Tall time steps out and he gets shot at, you know? Yeah. So leave it to dad. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. Yeah, you guys were neighbors for a long time there in Pike, weren't you? Yeah, awesome neighbor. Joe and and your dad, both two of the best neighbors I've ever had in my life. Yeah, yeah, it's um, when you can get guys, no matter how good a hunters they are, like, you know, you always get that concern. We were talking about it with, uh, in regards to like Mark, you know, Mark and his property up there with the Lindsay's and, you know, neighboring each other. They're both great hunters, great sets of hunters. And you always got that concern in the back of your head that the others might kill the deer you're after. But ultimately it's a blessing too, because you know, they're managing the same way you are. And I mean, you can't ask for a better neighbor, you know, in that way. I'd rather them kill them when they're six than kill them when they're two. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yep. So very true. So, I've got one final question for you, Dan. I think we need to start wrapping things up. But real quick, back to the original question about food plots. Um, One thing I'm always curious about is mistakes, because I think when it comes to food plots, there's a lot of different mistakes that can be made. I think one of the first things, one of the most common things, goes back to your original answer, which was not taking a soil sample, not figuring out the right way to amend your soil, and not figuring out the right type of forage for that. Um, Other than that, what are some of the or the most you know dangerous mistakes that you see most amateur or beginner food plotters making, Dan? That you think um, we could learn from? No, number one mistake in my mind is overhunting that food plot, just because there's a lot of deer visiting it. Because every every time that you hunt it, and every time that you know you may think you don't get caught, but every time that you go in and out, your scent is left in an area where there's a lot of deer, and now they're aware. You know, it's uh, and that's to me that's the number one number two is hunting it 
it's their favorite spot, so they hunt it regardless of the wind direction, regardless of the conditions. And that's that's like the second worst thing that you could ever do. If the conditions are wrong, don't hunt it. You know, less is more. I, I, a lot of times people, I mean, I understand. I mean, there was a time that if I, it wasn't about when I hunt. It's like it's when I'm not working, I'm hunting, you know. <laughs> I understand that. But, but lo- very often, um, you reduce your chances of killing an animal by hunting too much than, than hunting less. If, if you choose your times, your days, your weather, and all that stuff just right, um, you, you will be more successful. And, that, and that's to me, is, 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 a big, is a big deal. It's amazing uh, you know, how many people we have on, and big buck killers and good hunters, and they always go back to that pressure hunting it on the right wind, you know, don't go in if it's not, everything's not right. It almost always goes back to that. Yep. Don't go in if it's not, everything is just right. It's like one of those absolute core principles. Yeah. When you're trying to take that step to hunting mature bucks, that is just an absolute foundation of everything you need to do. Yep. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. Uh, it's, it's always nice to talk to you. And, um, I mean, your resume speaks for itself. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dan, for sharing this with us. I thought we were going to talk all day. I didn't know that we were done. I'm just joking with you guys. It's awesome. I enjoyed it very much. That's the thing about these podcasts. Like we, we get rolling and the producers have to give us signs of wrapping us up because we could talk all day. And I we'll think just keep on John. That's the fun part about it. When you get to talking about hunting like this, I mean, you could go on and on and on. And, and it's just like you're sitting around, you know, the shop with some of your buddies, right? Stuff we love to talk about. You bet. Sometime, if you'll have me on, I would love to talk to you guys about land ownership. Uh, I would because there's a lot of people out there that do not believe that they could own a piece of heaven. They don't think it's possible financially. And and, and I I love to talk about that sometime. Let's do it the next podcast. Maybe we'll do that right now, Dan. (laughs) Well, before that, though, really quickly, we'll wrap this episode up. And just a reminder for our listeners and viewers, if you'd like to submit a question of your own for a future episode, you can go to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. And if you'd like to subscribe to get this audio version of the podcast on your phone or your tablet or in your car, you can go to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, and you'll be able to find all that good stuff there. And as always, you can find the video version of this podcast on the Dury Outdoors YouTube page. And, uh, you know, while you're there, check out all the new DOD TV episodes. Find us on social at the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And as always, you can check us out on DruryOutdoors.com. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Peace.